There is nothing wrong with your internet. Do not attempt to adjust your settings. We are controlling the podcast. We control the squealing and the screams. We can make your heart flutter, your eyes blur from tears, or sharpen your mind to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit back. We are in control of what you hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your setting. You are about to experience the awe and mystery known as the female mind. You are now entering the Fangirl Zone. We will continue exploring, discovering new worlds, new civilizations. Welcome to the Captain's Chair, a podcast on all shows in the Star Trek universe on the Fangirl Zone. I'm Chief Engineer Steve, and joining me on this mission into the unknown is... I'm Redshirt Dave, and tonight we'll be discussing Episode 9 of Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery. Well, what'd you think of this episode, Dave? Oh man, that's what I was going to ask you. (laughs) I get what they're under what they're doing, but I don't quite understand it. Yeah, it you know? definitely opens up some possibilities that could go either way. I mean, yeah. I could see Giorgio escaping the Terran universe and getting back into our universe in the past, but I could also <laughs> see her coming back to the future. So I don't know which way it's going to go. <laughs> And she's dying because she needs to to right a wrong from the past. Well, I don't. Isn't know. that the way they're kind of setting it up? Like the those things are connected. I'm like, how are those connected? Yeah. Well, I don't know for sure if it's righting a wrong or if she's got to make peace with herself. In and the that's past. why she's yeah. And that's okay. what well, she's that's, trying to do. Yeah. And if you're in the the Terran universe, you, you're not righting a wrong. You're wronging a right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I don't see how that has to do with saving her. Unless uh, they're building something towards how the two dimensions are drifting apart, and I don't know. And the possibility of the guy in the bowler is someone like we've met before. I, I definitely think that's the case. <laughs> and they realize something's wrong, and so this is how you fix it? That's that's a pretty good scale for a, a, like a mother-daughter conflict. <laughs> oh, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's what I was stuck on. Yeah, yeah, there's so how, questions to be answered that's for sure yeah let's well let's see if they can actually answer them that's what worries me sometimes yes you get this huge plot line and then it's fixed <laughs> like a comic book solution like ah, okay whatever right we'll see all right well let's get into this episode okay episode nine terra firma part one we knew it had to do something with the terran universe when of they said course. of course The USS Discovery crew journeyed to a mysterious planet in hopes of finding a cure for Giorgio's deteriorating condition. Stamets and Adira make a stunning breakthrough with a newly acquired burn data. Well, it's a good thing Stamets was there anyway. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You forgot to change the batteries. I changed the batteries. Oh, you didn't see? Oh, those batteries. Right. You you old people. (laughs) So assessing Philippa Giorgio's condition in sick bay, the mysterious Kovic reveals classified data about a Belagoisian time soldier. Intriguingly dressed in an early TNG-style collarless uniform who traveled forward in time from 2379 and across from an alternate universe that was created by a Romulan mining ship's temporal incursion. Imagine that. (laughs) That's a huge info dump right there. Oh, hell yes. 
<laughs> and has deep rooted ramifications of how they're going to proceed and which in timeline wise. Yes. Which you're about to tell us. Yes. <laughs> yes. This remarkable fact means that the Federation actually knows about Nero, the Narnia, and the Kelvin timeline by the 32nd century. That's a lot. Yes, it is. Was not <laughs> expecting that at all. <laughs> Somewhere Chris Pine is going, so do I have a job or not? Yeah. <laughs> So additionally, Kovic explains that a person's molecules thrive in the era in which they were born. So people, namely Giorgio and the Betelgosian, have moved through both time and multiple dimensions are even more susceptible to those ill effects. He suggests there's no, no known cure exists and the Terran's demise remains imminent. But Dr. Culver uncovers a potential solution thanks to our massive database of knowledge from our sphere data yep as he instructs the discovery a's computer to correlate data from before and after the starship's journey into the future did you see how long that took yeah <laughs> <laughs> it didn't no <laughs> she's probably i guess this is the sphere sitting there with arms crossed toe tapping just ask me <laughs> right <laughs> i've got the answer right here <laughs> right here Giorgio's phasing is worsened, leading to an awkward confrontation when Tilly attempts to offer a helping hand. Oh, brother. Got a helping hand, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She can't grab her uh, glass of wine, but she can grab Tilly's uh <laughs> Yes, I know. <laughs> Soup bowl. Here you go. Hope you like carrots. Yeah. Burnham intercedes and brings the Terran to a ready room briefing where Culver relays that the sphere data suggests a cure might be found on a planet Danis 5, located near the Dominion's old Gamma Quadrant stomping ground. Yikes, who wants to go there? Yeah. <laughs> no, don't need to run into a Jemadar right now. Nope. Saru shares some unfortunate intelligence of his own, stating that the Emerald Chain's upcoming military maneuvers will require Discovery to remain with the fleet. However, Admiral Vance authorizes the mission, privately explaining to Saru that captains must do everything possible to save one of their crew members. <laughs> so much for Mr. By the Book. Yes. <laughs> they want a change of heart. He's Mr. Rules the thing. You guys need to catch up with us. And now he's like, <laughs> okay, you know what? You're doing this wrong, Saru. Yep. <laughs> That's okay. In the vessel's gym, Giorgio and Burnham spar physically and verbally, with the subject of Mirror Burnham being a particularly sensitive topic. Oof, isn't it ever? It yes. always is. <sighs> they can't help but seeing the other one, the other version of the other one, and thinking something. Yet, they still have this strange affection for each other. Right. It's so, it's so passive-aggressive, though. <laughs> but I do like the sparring. I like the look on uh, Burnham's face when the, uh, the axe <laughs> goes flying by her, yes. sticks in the wall. <laughs> Gives her look like, just throw that at me. Yeah. <laughs> Prior to being down to Danis 5, Saru and Tilly convey heartfelt goodbyes to the former emperor. Former? Oh, who yeah. seems surprisingly moved by their friendly gestures, or at least as outwardly appreciative as a Terran can be. Yeah, I know. She barely was able to hug uh, Tilly, but she did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the look on her face was priceless. I know. What do I do about this? <laughs> I'm not changing its growth. Yeah. 
Down in engineering, Stamets supplies fatherly advice to Adira, suggesting that Gray has avoided speaking to them so they will socialize with the rest of the crew. Yep, why not? Stamets discovers his pupil's error and manages to code the distress signal emanating from where the burn originated in the Verubin Nebula. I know. I thought a deer was going to start breaking things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a kid. Run yeah. around and start smashing stuff. Or at least run to the window and smoke a cigarette while her hand dangles outside the window so <laughs> mom doesn't smell it. Yeah. <laughs> The astromycologist and his people managed to decode the distress signal emanating from where the burn originated in the Veruba Nebula. The holographic message is from Dr. Issa, played by Hannah Spear, who previously portrayed Saru's sister, Serana. Recognized her right away. Yep. Of course, he did, too. That look on his face, like, huh? Yes. <laughs> A kelping aboard the KSF Keith, hope I spelled that, uh, pronounced that correctly, who explains to them that the Federation Rescue View never arrived to assess her stranded ship. So did I get something wrong there, Steve? I thought it was a, a Federation uh, beacon that was coming out of there, not something aboard, you know, a KSF vessel. No, it was a distress call. Yeah, but and I thought so it was a... Uh, probably was from a ship. Yeah. Anyway, I thought, well, I thought it was a... They were convinced it was a... Yeah, it was a Federation distress signal. That was even in the... Uh, previously on right but it wasn't a federation ship it's the ksf ship oh you're right but they must have been already members of the federation then why is it ksf i don't know yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm curious yeah. about that too yeah hopefully next week stamets indicates that the recording dates uh back to at least a century and was filmed before the burn did he say filmed that would have been hilarious yes through <laughs> <laughs> orders his team to work at a remotely Accessing the vessel's sensors as Dr. Issa's mission entailed investigating a Dilithium nursery in the nebula. And then, you know, the way my mind works, I'm picturing little baby Dilithium crystals sitting yes. in a nursery with diapers on them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else picture that? Just me? On the barren and snowy planet below, Giorgio and Burnham encounter a quizzical being named Carl. Carl? Yes. Who sits by a plain wooden door because that happens all the time. Is he a Q? I know. When I saw that, I'm like, of course. And, and it didn't take them long. I mean, they they skipped a beat, too. Looked at them, and they just, okay, explain. Yes. <laughs> Saying <laughs> plenty of weird stuff. A... Yeah, really. Why why are you wearing a, a bowler and not a fedora? Yes. We, we need to know right now. <laughs> After a series of befuddling statements from Carl, Giorgio resolves to seek the cure and steps through the door when she's greeted by Sylvia, Captain Killy Tilly, in the ISS Discovery's shuttle bay. I noticed the change of crew, too. Yes. Uh, Giorgio deduces her arrival coincided with the time period in which the Mirror Lorker and her uh, beloved Mirror Burnham planned to enact her coup attempt, which is... Yeah, fine. But I don't know what's got to do with her sickness, unless it is a, a Q thing. Right. You know, It could be. It could be. I just want to hope we see that, uh, that Dilithium baby nursery next week with their diapers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At a gathering in the lounge, we see several familiar faces, including welcome cameos from Arium and Landry. Surprise, surprise. That's good to see her. Yes. Mayor Burnham steps into the room with an evil air, and Giorgio probes her daughter for information related to Lorca and their secret plot. Of course, Burnham's Terran counterpart becomes enraged at Mirror Saru, but Giorgio spares the Kelpian's life. Softy. Yeah, in the safety of her quarters, the Emperor asks Saru for his perspective on why Burnham would, would betray her. Kelpian elucidates that Burnham is under the impression that Giorgio has become weak, even weaker than she was. 
Thus, the younger officer must forsake the emperor in order to survive. In the corridor, Giorgio comes upon Burnham and others watching Reese battle Awuzakan over the position of security chief on the Charon. Great fight. Yes, it was. The duo <laughs> wager over the fight with Giorgio betting on Awuzakan because she is loyal to the throne, whereas Reese is only interested in the prestigious title. <laughs> This is why I call her Joanne, yes. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> loyalty always wins if the focus of that loyalty is strong and worthy, Giorgio says, and feared Burnham adds. <laughs> mm. Just then, the Discovery arrives at his destination and calls off a Wozakon who is pummeling Reese on the floor. They must love dressing up in these alternate uniforms and beating the crap out of each other. Oh, the actors love to play the evil versions of themselves. It, oh, they just yeah. love it. <laughs> I could just see Osakon saying, I'm going to beat the ever-loving crap out of you. And he reads the script. He's like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Meanwhile, in the shuttle bay, Giorgio and the crew watch a dramatic performance, Cirque du Soleil. Yes. <laughs> accompanied by a narration from Stamets describing how Giorgio rose from being a peasant girl to fight off the Klingons and become emperor. That sounds like a really interesting history. Oh, yeah. The curtain drops to reveal a Charon in space nearby, complete with glowing thingy in the middle. Giorgio rises to address the audience. Yeah, sorry, I got a little technical there with thingy. <laughs> Giorgio rises to address the audience. Speaking of strength and enemies attacking from without and within, she suddenly turns and stabs Stamets, who was sidled up to her with a dagger. <laughs> I'm like, ah, Stamets, really? That was your plan? Okay. She resumes speaking, warning a plot against the Empire. Giorgio resumes her seat on the throne as as Burnham stews. I like how she stews. She kind of bows her head yes. and her eyes, you know, become that la laser focus. Burnham stands and salutes Giorgio, prompting the rest of the crew to do so as well. Burnham leaves quietly. That wasn't obvious. Where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> Burnham voices support for her mother, but Giorgio until he capture her as she makes an exit through Discovery's corridors. <laughs> Burnham dares the Emperor to ex execute her, but Giorgio restrains herself and declares that their future has not been written. Barely able to contain her anger, the Emperor banishes Burnham to the Agonizer. <laughs> so, well, they spoke of earlier of not mistaking growth for weakness. We, we really didn't get a look at this before, but now we were seeing that day. Right. But we don't really see what, uh, what you know, I don't know. Was it love with Lorca that made her change? That's growth. Yeah. Somebody else's growth. Michael's growth. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not going down the rabbit hole, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice if we had had at least a little more information about what actually happened in the past on that day. Yeah. Than than what we got because it does definitely seems like what Giorgio has done so far has changed the past there. Right. What does that mean? Who knows? Hopefully we'll find out in next episode. I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot to cover. Yes, it is. And tying in a guy named Carl and a door on a snow planet with alternating timelines and or changing timelines. Kelvin references, well, at least to us, and everything else. I, I, I am curious how they're going to wrap that up, Steve. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, so far, they've. The writers have managed to pull most of their uh, stuck-in-the-corners out pretty well, so let's hope they are able to do it again. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure they're listening to this podcast going, <laughs> Dave, yeah. we got this. Please, 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 just tune in next week. Okay. So we got some Easter eggs, Steve? We do. 
This is the first episode that has referred to the Mirror Universe and Prime Universe as Mirror and Prime in dialogue. Pretty cool. This is also the first mention of any awareness of the Kelvin uh, Universe, the new timeline created by the incursion of the Romulan mining ship, as we spoke of earlier. So that's that's part of the package that we're wondering about. Yeah, tie that in. I want to see it. Yeah, and they did it beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I want to know more, Steve. That's not enough. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Even the alternate me wants to know more. Boy, showing how Lieutenant Commander Yor crossed over from the Kelvin universe into the Prime universe, it, it, I wonder if that's going to be a movie. And again, firmly establishes they are separate parallel universes, just like the Mirror universe. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if that's just their way of saying we can have both. We have our cake and eat it too. You like the old story? Fine. You like the new story? Fine. Yeah. They're all I, tied I, together, so. Yeah, all tied together. We just tied everything We're together. One be, big happy family now. That's right. Be happy. <laughs> this is for you, Dave. The Discovery computer has every Starfleet database from the 32nd century. I always choke when I speak of Starfleet databases. Yeah. Along with 23rd century databases, but I don't choke over that uh, century. Lost to the burn, along with sphere data, making it possibly the smartest thing in the galaxy. And as we found out, with a sense of humor, too. Yeah, not possibly. It is the smartest thing in the galaxy. It is. Don't make it tap its foot. No. <laughs> There's a Starfleet ship that first approached to the KSF Kais distress call with the USS Hiraga Genai, named for the 18th century Japanese doctor artist Inventor. Hmm, I'm not sure you want to be a, an artist inventor with uh, Michael Burnham around. You're going to lose your eyes and hands. Yes. <laughs> not anymore, you're not. Yeah. This episode is the first appearance of the Mirror Culber, although his red medical uniform was developed during season one. That was awesome. I loved his uniform. Yeah, and it was awesome in that um, gathering area where everybody's just partying and having a great time. I know. I know. Shots. Yeah. Shots and arm wrestling shockers. <laughs> yes. Who can take the most agonizer? Yeah. Since I'm in New England, I visited Boston a lot. They have, this isn't boomer talk. This is real back in time talk. We have the USS Constitution, old Ironside, tied up in the Charlestown Navy Yard. Right. And the floor of it where the cannons are are red. And like, everyone's like, why are the floors red? And so you don't see all the blood running across it. And I thought, huh, <laughs> <laughs> don't laugh. That's the official explanation. Oh, oh absolutely. Mayor Culber wears a red uniform like that. Well, they don't have any problem drawing blood in that universe. And he probably doesn't have any problem spilling it. So I think that's pretty appropriate to have a yeah. red uniform if you're a doctor over there. Yes. <laughs> Good story, Dave. Anyway, David Benjamin Tomlinson, Linus, played the Kelpian servant who spilled the sauce on, on Landry. Good nod. Yes. Visually, Giorgio and Michael traipsing among the deserted yet beautiful planet had to be a callback to the opening scene of the show. That's exactly where my mind went. Oh, absolutely. The, you know, back in the day, they would... You kids don't know what a helicopter is today, but You're now they have everything. Yeah, I know. I'm kidding. They're just expecting hate mail. That's all. Yes. I, I, <laughs> the, the other universe, me, thrives on hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> but now we have drones you can fly. I'm sure that's a drone shot. You don't need a helicopter anymore. Right. Yeah. Still pretty cool. Yeah. Either that is the biggest boom shot in the history of filming TV. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Saru is 100% ready to sacrifice the needs of the few for the needs of the many, but Terra Firma Part 1 begins to ask the question, what will happen when he's the only one who really cares about the few? I was going to go down that rabbit hole too, but nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The distress call related to the source of the burn came from a Kelpian ship that was investigating a dilithium nursery with all those babies inside the nebula over 100 years ago, and Saru really cares about it. Kelpian, over 100 years old. <laughs> I know, he was, uh, he was like, uh, he was really giving that thing the once-over. Of course, it looked like his sister, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely uh, it did. 
I wonder was a we're supposed to think that like that's a part of their family lineage, maybe a relative. I don't it know. Wouldn't surprise me that that's possibly what Saru is thinking. I yeah, mean, this kind of exp- explains why he reacted when they were first listening to the sound. Yeah, in engineering, um, that w- he, you know, we see the dilated eye and we see the ear is maybe yeah. he figured that out before everybody else did and just wanted yeah. proof. I wish he had. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. That's good. The, nothing about the music though. Right. No music reference, huh? Anyway, we did get Admiral Vance reference suggesting that Giorgio on an uninhabited planet is better than a brig in a starship. Yeah, anywhere else. Yeah, and we even call Kov- back to that too coming up. Yeah, even Kovic is like, "You sure you want that on your <laughs> your ship?" Yeah. <laughs> this kind of reference to the idea that Kirk was going to maroon Gary Mitchell on Delta Vega rather than just kill him outright. Meanwhile, while the name of the planet here, Danis Five, is new to the Trek canon, the world reference Richard, uh, re- reference writer Richard Danis, who wrote both for the Next Generation and DS9. And for those who care, I have an autographed picture of Gary Lockwood over my desk right now as I speak. Nice. I know. Well, it's from 2001, but <laughs> a space odyssey, but still yeah. a treasure. Vance tells Burnham that he needs to know needs to know she won't hesitate if Giorgio gets dangerous. Burnham says, you're referring to Commander Arium. Yeah, she's not going to walk away from that one. This reference is the events of Project Daedalus, in which Arium nearly killed everyone after getting possessed by the AI called Control. The idea that there is an objective prime universe is, of course, fan speak that has bled into the actual canon of Star Trek, because that's how much power we have. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody in the mirror universe considers themselves to be from an alternate dimension, and ditto with the Kelvin universe. This is the first time this kind of thing has been openly addressed on screen in Trek canon. Yeah, I think my head spun a little. Yeah. <laughs> they did that, like, hold it, hold it, hold it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reset. This is why I'm glad we have pause buttons now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what did you just say? Burnham says that the mysterious door doesn't register on her tricorder. This is a little like the Guardian of Forever in, of Forever in the TOS episode, City on the Edge of Forever. In that episode, Spock says, for this to do what it does, it does is... <laughs> I still can't get through it. <laughs> There's too many it does. I know. <laughs> for this to do what it does, it does is impossible. You sure Spock said that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Spock would say something that nobody else can say. I mean... Yeah. Well, it is impossible. Possible by any science that he understands. Right? It could be other science. Yeah. That was, I, if you haven't seen City on the Edge of Forever, you're in for a, a treat. That's one of the all time great Star Trek episodes. Yes. And uh, moving on, when Adira and Stamus locate the Kelpian ship that is still setting a signal in the Verubian Nebula, they mentioned they have a prefix code which would be able to open up a backdoor to the systems. It references the Wrath of Khan. That was a welcome memory. When yes. Kirk uses the prefix code of the Reliant in order to lo- have the ship lower its shields. That was so great. Yes. When they type it in there and he, he gets he adjusts his glasses yes. and he takes a look and he goes, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, uh, they're powering up the weapons and and he uh, rat, and Khan wants everything, you know, well, raise our shields. I can't. <laughs> and he's, the guy slams his fist down on the thing. Watch it, that sensitive equipment. Yeah. But that was a great moment. When Giorgio walks to, especially the look on Khan's face. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. 
Before Giorgio walks through the magic door, she call, she said she'd rather die standing. This might be a reference to a recent tie-in discovery novel called Die Standing by Jackson Miller. In that book, there's a character from Giorgio's past name, San, and it seems like this is the person she's mourning in the Mirror Universe flashback from this season. Hmm. Yep. Giorgio, what? Uh, yeah, that's. I didn't know that there was a, a recent discovery novel. <laughs> Neither did I. Yeah. Giorgio was seemingly trapped. Not in this timeline. Giorgio has... Anything I don't know, I'm going to blame on a lack of a timeline. Giorgio has seemingly traveled into the mirror universe and back to the year 2255. All those events served as a backstory for a Star Trek Discovery Season 1 and effectively happened before the show began, in, in case your head wasn't spinning enough. Right. <laughs> Killy, Killy references the Imperial Shipyards in Epsilon Indy 4. This star system first appeared in the original episode, Star Trek, the original episode, and the children shall lead. Ellen Landry, played by Battlestar Galacta veteran Rekma Sharma, returns in this episode. We haven't seen Landry since season one of uh, Discovery, in which she seemingly died twice, once as Prime Landry, and again when Disco blew up the Charon. But, you know, she saw that script and says, yeah, I'll do it. Oh, hell yes. Okay. Right? Yeah. Notably, Landry was part of Lorca's coup, but it looks like nobody knows that right now. But still, I like the look on her face. Some people can master evil. Certainly Joanne could. Boy. When uh, they were in the hallway and they confronted Michael and Giorgio takes out a sword to cut off Michael's head. Right. Do you see the look on uh, Joanne's face? Yes. <laughs> yes. Blood will be spilled. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, we hear Emperor Giorgio's fancy little title voice in this episode, Her Most Imperial Majesty, Mother of the Fatherland, Overlord of Vulcan, Dominus of Konos. I didn't say that right. Dominus of Konos. Regina Andor, Philippa Giorgio Augustus Ionopus Centaurus. We first heard this title in the Discovery episode, Vaulting Ambition. I'm, I'm surprised Killy slash uh, Tilly managed to do through all that without laughing. She probably did. Right, yes. <laughs> and how many really? times did she get tongue-tied? I'd love to know uh, how many takes it took to get all that out. <laughs> I, hope, I hope we see it. Yeah. Giorgio Augustus Iponius Centaurus. Wow. The last time we visited the Mirror Universe, we hadn't been introduced to the DOT bots from Season 2 of Discovery, yes. And those were awesome, too. Here it appears that this Terran Starfleet had red-eyed versions of those cute little things because, of course, they do. <laughs> of course, they do. And I, I'm pretty sure they scowl, too. Oh, yeah. They looked menacing. <laughs> they did. They, they go out of the room and, like, giving everybody the eyeball. They're like, go ahead. Look at me. I'll phaser I'll you out of existence. Yes. <laughs> In season one of Discovery, we didn't know about the process of the Val... Uh-oh. Here we go. The Vaharai. That's not bad. In which Kelpins are supposed to turn to badasses. In the Mirror Universe, it seems that the Terrans have taken the place of Baul introduced in the episode The Sound of Thunder. Are you going to say something about Kelpins? Uh, no. Crazy badasses. Yeah, we need to be saved from that. Did Giorgio know about the Vaharai only because of her trip to the Prime Universe? Or do high-level Terrans know about it? What do you think, Steve? I kind of think that it's because of her trip to the Prime Universe. Because they didn't even know that it turned them into something they weren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Still cool. We see Owo battling to keep her job as a scared chief the Caron in the first Mirror timeline. She had this job. During the christening ceremony, we see a dramatic recreation of Giorgio's ascension to become emperor of the Terran Empire. That was the, that was the most awesome crown, too, if you can call it a crown. Oh, yeah. Sparkly uh, <laughs> hot tiara. I don't know. That thing was amazing. I wonder if she gets to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> One aspect of this has to do with her totally dominating the Klingons. Yeah. 
In the future of the Mirror Universe, we learn that the Klingon-Cardassian alliance eventually destroyed the Terran Empire. Clearly, the Klingons were harboring a hundred-year-long grudge. Well, that may change now. Yes. <laughs> in terms of story beats, Giorgio is, is in a similar place Kirk was in Mirror Mirror. Kirk spared the life of Mirror Chekhov. Giorgio spares the life of Mirror Burnham. Mm-hmm. Kirk started being nice to his concubine. Giorgio is being nice to her slave, the Mirror Saru. Don't be nice. In both cases, the characters know that everyone will freak out if they if they keep acting nice and forgive the people around them. So an air of arrogance and bluster is required. The difference is that Kirk only had to fake it until he made it out of the mirror universe. What's Giorgio going to do? Fake it until she reforms the Terran Empire? Good question. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Finally, is this a backdoor pilot for Michelle Yao's Star Trek spinoff? This is an impressively thorough one. If it is, it's an impressively thorough one. Yes. Certainly, I was thinking of Mandalorian. Yeah, they've been using the Mandalorian as a backdoor pilot to things, too. Yes. If this is true, then uh, they did tackle this a little more artfully, I think. Star Trek, that is. Right. Yeah. That was a lot, Steve. Yeah. So what what do you think? Do we think that Giorgio's going to manage to change the mirror universe's past and escape to the prime universe? And that's how she's going to do Section 31 in the past. Or do you think she's going to actually fall victim to the coup? To the coup? Alice Q. And end up walking back through the door? Yes. yes see you next week (laughs) i think i don't know why would you want to change the entire terran universe is that would be an impossibility i think and it it would undercut that entire storyline of them being the opposite of everything we see over here right it wasn't necessarily true because the klingons sound the same no matter what timeline or universe they're in but that's the whole charm to the mirror universe is that uh, we get to see everybody act like <laughs> they're opposite. Yes. So I don't know why you wouldn't build that. So I, I would imagine it would cause she somehow would fix everything, whatever needs to be fixed. And I'm not sure what that is, but it would allow her to fake her death so she could enter our universe. Right. <laughs> I mean, there must be a reason, right? And yeah. this, this, this grand, I'm not going to say charade, but there has to be a reason for Carl and his, and his hat and everything else and doorways. Right. And getting... And a newspaper. Yeah, and a newspaper. I'm surprised they didn't go, what, what's a newspaper? But people right, are saying yeah. that these days. <laughs> what's a newspaper? You know, that thing that's online. Right. Oh, that. They made it out of paper? What for? Yeah. So. Uh, that's a boomer reference. Yes. Remember newspapers? <laughs> All right. Well, we do have some feedback. Is Fred going to help us with this? I'm not real sure if he is or not. <laughs> Come on, Fred. Help us out. Well, I do think he um, enjoyed it a little bit better than last week. <laughs> oh, good. He's a tough judge. Yep. So here's Fred's thought on this episode. Hello, Steve and Dave. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 9. I like this episode better than last week's, but, well, last week's was last week's. I don't know if I really like this Terran surrounding. It's interesting, but it's also, of course, quite creepy. A lot of very nice, shiny armors, you could say. Visual effects are very nice. But that's actually always in Star Trek Discovery. The man with the bowler and the newspaper was a little bit too awkward for me. When it proves to be a kind of dream or something like that, then I can imagine it. But if it's really something, let's say, real, it's very strange. 
I don't like how Saru treats Book, but on the other hand, it is in character, I think, for Saru. What I did like is how Georgiou, being in our world, our universe, according to her, you can't call it the prime universe, because she regards her universe, the Terran universe, as the prime universe, which I can understand, is that you notice that she has been, although she's always very tough, has been softened. Especially if you see how she treats the servant Saru. So we always find her very tough and uh, unlikable. But for Terran's standard, she is actually a softie. And I think now even more so. Although in the original situation, Burnham, so Terran Burnham, wanted to assassinate her. Because she was already soft. So now she's extra soft. It's like the good tissues you use for your COVID sneeze. Okay, that's all for now. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Well, at least he didn't say toilet paper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fred, I definitely kind of agree with you that Giorgio has definitely softened up. Yeah. So that's... <laughs> you know, if she has softened and she does get make it back to uh, the past, whether it's a Kelvin or original timeline, she's going to have to become a badass once again, especially if she's going to be part of that Secret Service. Oh, yeah. And she doesn't have a problem with that, I don't think. No, I don't think so. Because <laughs> when she was there last season, she was taking no prisoners. So, you know, that's right up her alley. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So... I did. I did like that. Uh, Fred spoke of Saru and Book. We didn't touch on that, right? It, it was small, but it, it's got to lead to something bigger, at least because Book wants in, as he keeps saying, right? And and now he's oddly enough, he's he's encountered Saru that is completely by the book, pun intended. Yes. <laughs> even even Vance has to overrule him. Saru must be like, I don't know what side to take. Yeah. <laughs> what works around here? But the visual effects, you're right, Fred. Visual effects are always awesome. They did some awesome things. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Did we hear from Jazz? Yes, we did. We did? Oh, yes. okay. We also Play on. some feedback from Jazz. Before we get to it, I do want to say that if you remember right, when we first saw Q, mm-hmm. we kind of had this, what the f- yeah. is going on here? Yeah. Which was very similar to what we got with Carl. So just keep that in mind, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> but no French accent. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> you have to lampoon. If it was, a, that would have been hilarious. Yes. A French accent. <laughs> All right, let's hear what Jazz thinks about this episode. Okay. Hello, this is Jazz with a review of Discovery Season 3, Episode 9. Here are my thoughts. In the beginning of the episode, when Giorgio goes to the planet to find out what may or may not help her, she thanks various people in her own way and gets a hug from Tilly. And I think she actually appreciated that hug more than she wanted to admit because her voice cracked when she told Michael, let's go. And she seemed to actually give respect to Saru for once when she was leaving. And when they got to the planet, there was a representative known only as Carl, which I thought was a lovely coincidence since there was stupid Carl and on Winona Earp, who played a revenant, who normally helped out sort of and then not, and then got knocked off, of course. And then there was also a character named Carl on Vagrant Queen. It was in one of the first scenes. So I thought that was a nice thread between all the 
all the shows. Hopefully this Carl turns out to be reasonably nice. He wasn't exactly giving a straight answer, but I would be with Giorgio going, this is my one shot. I'm going to take it. So she gets there and it is her old world, supposedly. And she finds out it's the day that Michael betrays her. And she's grown a lot on the our world discovery. And so she's not as quick to have everybody die quickly, which I think shows growth. And I think she had been romanticizing her Michael and thought that she could grow and become better. But in a world where you're a lot like Sith and you rise to power through violence and sadism, and the only way that you get an upgrade is if you kill your boss, I don't really have much hope for Michael changing, just having a different way to try and stab her in the back. Evidently, if you die in battle, then it's sort of Klingon-esque. Today is a good day to die. To be tortured, not so much. And uh, when they got to the point where she said, okay, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to take you to the agonizer. Tully looked really happy about being able to use this toy. And Michael looked really distressed having to be that way. And so did uh, the bodyguard. She had tears in her eyes. And I thought that was very interesting. I saw a review of Stennis. Uh, rather the actor, saying, hey, we're going to go back into the alternate universe. And I died. But okay, I'm I'm willing to go back. And evidently he dies again. So, because <laughs> he tried to knock off the emperor. So props for the emperor for stabbing him in the neck with a knife. That's a painful way to go. But of course, no worse than being in the back. Sheesh. Props for all the rap and rhyming about her life before she became the emperor. I think she thinks that uh, there are positives about changing life and, and you don't have to be as cold and ruthless and sadistic to get what you want. And so she's trying to change, but everybody has been grown up with. You must be horrible and tamp down the good parts of you. So I would think it's very difficult to have friends if you know your buddy is going to stab you in the back if you're up for promotion. That's just me. I thought that Giorgio was smart to get Saru because I'm sure Michael was just cleaning up the loose ends and coming up with the reason to knock him off since evidently he knew everything that she had been planning with her lover boy, who I don't know if is the same actor as Book or not because I haven't seen him. But it would be interesting. And if not, then maybe Book could help her change her ways. You never know. There were no goatees, I noticed, in this mirror episode. So I guess that's a plus. So when the emperor was going to be crowned the emperor, nobody in the audience looked thrilled. And the doctor seemed very interested that the assassination almost went through with it, which I thought was interesting since Giorgio had said that in her time, the doctors were killed if the patient died, in this case being the emperor. So I wouldn't think he would want the emperor to die. But I guess if you're in cahoots with the person who wants to knock off the emperor, maybe they will give you a pass and not knock you off. I noticed that Didmer didn't have an eye implant and that she just had regular eyes. So that's good for her. And they had a, a high arm salute. So that also showed that it was a, a bad guy environment. So let's see. The security guard looked scared for Michael. Captain Tilly looked happy about the agonizer. Alternate Michael is an ingrate. So she's not happy. She was evidently quite happy to be queen of a dung heap or trash heap. So you, you have to harbor a lot of resentment. If you've been with somebody for like 15 years, you must have really been attached to that trash heap. Giorgio doesn't seem to be having any timeline body issues. So maybe it's like it's a Matrix S place because she seems to think she's back into that timeline. Maybe it'll toy with her heartstrings and it'll come out the way that it was going to anyways. And that's how she dies. 
the guy did, the Carl did say that there are many different things that are worse than naturally dying. And I did see a background episode where they said, if you're in all those prosthetics, you have a liquid diet, which just doesn't sound pleasant at all. So props to Doug for playing Saru. I essentially was not as impressed with this episode. I thought it was an okay episode. I'm sure that it changed it up and made it more fun for the actors. And you can only get so far with saving planets, I suppose. And everybody needs to have their time to shine, which was all well and good. I'm sure it's, it's interesting. I was just not as impressed as it, with it as I was some of the other episodes. Maybe Fred loves it because there's lots of hack and slash going on. I don't know. But it, it was okay. I enjoyed it. But it, it wasn't as something I would put under my top 10 items. Maybe there wasn't enough snark. But anyways, it was it was good overall. Once again, this is Jazz. Thanks. Thank you, Jazz, for that in-depth feedback. <laughs> in-depth. Yes. I know, my, my egg timer ran out. Just kidding, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a crossover. She referenced, she referenced Fred. Yes. I thought, they were, I thought they were in different universes. I guess not. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> Fred has a goatee, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe Jazz does, too. I don't know. I do, but. Uh... <laughs> yes, that's true. I she didn't mention. Yeah, I was Queen just... and um, Winona Earp uh, callbacks yeah. to those Carls. That was great, Jazz. You should have mentioned a Walking Dead Carl. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we both did uh, discuss Giorgio's growth and being in uh, the Prime Universe and how much it has changed and what ramifications that's going to bring about back in her universe is yet to be seen. But thinking it's not good. <laughs> Mm. So this begs the question: if if the uh, if she changes its timeline for whatever reason, right. it cures her. She's allowed to uh, start her was it Section Thirty One show? Right. Who takes over the empire? Yeah, Lorca, Killy? probably. I don't know. She'll probably kill Lorca. Just ah, the same. Okay. Then it'd Michael. Be Michael. Well, Michael's like damn evil. Yeah. <laughs> she well. is, and bitter too. Go back to your trash heap. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I, that I, may I would be like the way that the Terran universe actually doesn't get taken down by the Cardassian Klingons. Yeah. How are we going to know? Are they going to explore that? Yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever find out. Damn it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> now I know how Stamets feels when he gets stabbed in the neck. Yes. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, both Fred and Jazz, we really appreciate your feedbacks and looking forward to hearing from you again very soon. We'd love to hear your thoughts on each and every episode this season and looking forward to interacting on social media with all the great fans. How can the fans interact with us, Dave? Well, in no matter what universe you're in, you can go to www.fangirlzone.com and click on the contact link where you'll find several ways to contact us via email or through social media. On Twitter, he's at Sawyer Steve, and I'm at the real ID Dave. And you can either tweet at us with a uh, goatee on or not. <laughs> Please review and rate us on iTunes and all other platforms you're listening to us on, as good ratings and reviews help other fans of the show find us. As there are a lot of Star Trek Discovery podcasts out there. Tell your friends, and we do hope you're enjoying our podcast. And don't forget to check out the other great Fangirl Zone podcasts, like the Mudhorn Clancast. Yes, one of my favorites. 
The 10th episode is on December 17th and is titled Terra Firma Part 2. That's pretty appropriate. So until then, remember. This is Chief Engineer Steve. As of this moment, our future is unwritten. Let's make it count, shall we? This is Redshirt Dave, and I was going to wax poetic that I'm master of my own trash heap. I'm sure you want to know all about it. But I was just thinking, Steve, when they tell, when they send Michael to the Agonizer. Yes. I was just thinking about the Agonizer in this universe. It's probably the opposite, right? So yeah, take me to the Agonizer. Yes. <laughs>